Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. A couple of weeks ago, the ASCO-GU virtual meeting took place and concluded. Usually, this meeting happens annually every February, and in general, it takes place in the beautiful city of San Francisco. For obvious reasons, this was another virtual meeting where everybody clogged to the, uh, their laptops and their computers and listened to advances in GU oncology. And I wanted to capture the top abstracts for our listeners on the Healthcare Unfiltered. And for this, I have invited three phenomenal investigators, researchers, and clinicians. Dr. Tony Schwery from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Dr. Alicia Morgans from Northwestern University, and Dr. Rana McKay from UCSD in California. However, I've asked Tony to be the guest host. I asked him to run the show and to moderate the discussion. I thought it would be great to have a phenomenal GU oncologist to moderate a discussion on ASCO-GU. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I hope you'll enjoy the debate. One of the goals of Healthcare Unfiltered is to bring you unfiltered clinical advances and scientific coverage to all of the meetings that take place year round in the US and outside of the US. So you can find Healthcare Unfiltered by going to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, any podcast outlet. Please subscribe to the show, write a brief review, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague. I would be grateful if you do so. And if you also let me know how I am doing and what opportunities that we all have together to improve on the podcast to meet your expectations. Without further ado, the ASCO-GU coverage moderated by our guest host, Dr. Tony Schwery from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute with guests, Dr. Rana McKay from UCSD and Alicia Morgans from Northwestern University. And here we go. Well, it's really a pleasure of mine to have three absolutely superstars, gurus, the movers and shakers of GU oncology nationally, regionally, internationally, all over the world, all over the globes. Globes, there's only one globe, by the way, just for you listeners. So look, I'm really happy today is uh, we're taping actually on Sunday, Sunday morning. Uh, that will be February 21st, 2021, for context, in case something happens between today and the day we air this podcast. At least you want to know that we, we, you know, some breakthrough might happen. Don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. But what I wanted to do is to bring three amazing clinicians, researchers, and GU oncologists to talk about the abstracts that took place at the virtual ASCO-GU meeting. Now, first of all, I know that we are not going to be able to cover all abstracts. Uh, so if your abstract is not covered, please uh, don't be mad. Just we want to try to capture as many abstracts as possible, but the ones have most clinical impact. 
That's what we think. The second thing is I'm not going to even be, be the host. So uh, I actually am going to take a back seat again. I'm going to listen to Dr. Tony Schwery, who is going to be the moderator, the host, the discussant, and he's going to actually lead the show, which is great. So I can have my cup of tea and just listen to the conversation. But before we get started, uh, I'm going to ask my guests to introduce themselves. And I'll start with our trooper who woke up early on the West Coast, because we are taping this at 9 a.m. Central, which is 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Dr. Rana McKay. Rana, a little bit about you, so at least listeners uh, know who you are. Certainly. So um, I'm Rana McKay here in uh, UCSD San Diego, uh, lead our genital urinary program. Super excited to be here with my colleagues, Tony and Alicia. Couldn't think of a better way to spend my Sunday morning, actually. <laughs> Love you guys. And then I have Dr. Uh, Alicia Morgans, who is local here in the Chicago area. So we're in the same time zone. Um, Alicia, a little bit about you and where you practice and where you are. Sure, thank you. So my name is Alicia Morgans. I'm a GU medical oncologist and associate professor of medicine at Northwestern University. Just absolutely delighted to be here today with friends to talk about GU ASCO. And our guest host, our guest host, the uh, formidable Tony Schwery, who, uh, Tony, there are few people out there who have no clue who you are. So maybe for those folks who don't know who you are, a little bit about you. Yeah, first, I have no clue who I am sometimes, one, especially on a Sunday morning. And I'm sure Dr. McKay and Morgan are pleased to be on this podcast. Meanwhile, uh, you know, I, I had to call in for a favor with the in-laws for the kids. But anyhow, this is the first opportunity where I am hosting, Shadi. So I don't know. I didn't get used to this. This is the first time I host. So I'm glad this is not uh, live. So I uh, work as a GU medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I lead the GU program there. And I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And uh, we're gonna discuss today, go through the GU Cancer Symposium that went virtual in San Francisco, but at home at the same time. But next year, we all gonna be live. Next year, right? 2022, we're gonna be live. All right, awesome. well, Tony, you are the guest host. You're gonna moderate this discussion. You all are the experts to kick it off and wherever you want. Okay, let, let's see how this can I go. This is my first time live. so. Um, it was a great meeting put together by a wonderful committee at the GU Cancer Symposium uh, around Valentine's Day in mid-February. I think how you know this is good is the amount of new data presented, which culminated actually in two um, New England Journal of Medicine concomitant publication and two Lancet uh, uh, publication. And uh, what what I suggested to Dr. Morgans and McKay is to go through each tumoral type. One of the things about uh, GU oncology for good or bad is that it encompasses uh, several uh, tumor type. Most of the time they have nothing to do with each other clinically or biologically. So let's start by uh, the big bear here, uh, prostate cancer. Good day for prostate cancer. A lot of um, good and new uh, information here. And I wanna start a bit by uh, Dr. Morgans. There has been several 
four oral presentation and several actually um, short presentation, the rapid abstract uh, session. But I wanna start by new information produced by Dr. Radkoff at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She presented the final result from ACIS, which uh, randomized placebo controlled study in metastatic uh, castration resistant prostate cancer combining both abiraterone acetate and apitulamide. So uh, a, a CYP17 uh, inhibitor and then androgen receptor inhibitor in uh, metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. If you don't mind putting this in context, what previous studies went along the same lines and what were results are uh, Dr. Morgans. Sure, thank you so much, Tony. So. You know, this study was really looking at patients who had not received prior intensification therapies for the metastatic hormone sensitive state or the non-metastatic CRPC state. So this was truly a first line metastatic CRPC population who had previously only received essentially ADT. Um, these patients were randomized to abiraterone with or without apalutamide with the thought that if we are able to really use a double approach and use this androgen annihilation uh, approach, we can even more thoroughly suppress testosterone signaling and hopefully be able to subvert some of the escape mechanisms that allow patients' uh, tumors to really develop resistance to these approaches when we use just a GnRH agonist or antagonist plus one of those AR-targeted therapies. Patients were enrolled and they were followed for a primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival, which I think is an important and interesting distinction because in many of these studies, we try to aim for overall survival, knowing that it is difficult sometimes to find an intermediate endpoint in prostate cancer that is really tightly tied to that survival endpoint. In any event, the combination arm of abiraterone and apalutamide actually had a significantly prolonged radiographic progression-free survival by multiple months. I think it was six or seven months, which is really impressive, I think, when uh, we know that these were not just investigator-assessed uh, radiographic progression Im improvements, but actually retrospectively, there was a blinded internal central review to confirm that this was a true radiographic progression-free survival. So that I think is really, really important and was one of the key take-home messages. You know, unfortunately, there was not a survival benefit associated with this, although we did see that there may be trends in those directions for patients who are over 75 and patients who had visceral metastases. So these, these subgroups seem to benefit the most. Um, but there was this pretty striking radiographic progression-free survival benefit, which, um, which is interesting. Notably, of course, as we might expect, the adverse events were slightly more in the combination arm, but they weren't prohibitive and, and most patients stayed on therapy and, and this was something that was generally presumed to be tolerable. Though I, I have not yet seen the patient-reported outcome data to really substantiate that and to give, give a patient's perspective on, on that data. But, this is sort of the, the overall gestalt of the study, which I think is, is interesting, has some challenges um, that I'm happy to, to talk about if, if you're, you're interested in hearing them. But, but um, it was certainly, I think, uh, one of the bigger, bigger pieces of information, one of the bigger news flashes of GeoASCO from, from the prostate perspective. Oh, absolutely. And I think you put it uh, you know, well in context, but I do would love you to put this into context with other similar studies of androgen annihilation. I know there was a 
an alliance study led by Dr. Michael Morris. And why are we still insisting on overall survival in this patient population in prostate cancer? How can we put that in perspective? Because I think the listener here may be a bit um, confused why even inside GU oncology, there are some times where we accept this is the new standard based on a progression-free survival and other times based we need an overall survival. So what do you think? Yeah, so to, to answer that question first and then we can talk about studies that are sort of similar. You know, I think prostate cancer is pretty tricky because when progression-free survival includes things like PSA responses, then we don't really see a tight correlation with that and, and this ultimately meaningful survival endpoint. And I think that we need as a field to not just do what we can, but to do what is meaningful. And so I think that's why we often have these primary endpoints that sometimes can be around radiographic progression-free survival or metastasis-free survival, but we, we always want to include some assessment of overall survival as well. The other piece with prostate cancer is that similar to kidney cancer and, and now bladder cancer as we're getting more and more, or urothelial cancer as we're having more and more therapies, is that we need to understand whether it is that upfront combination that is really important, or is it a sequencing that's possible where we could limit we could limit uh, certainly adverse events and perhaps financial toxicity too by sequencing agents rather than just doubling them up or tripling them up. So I think it's just a lot to unpack. And ultimately the FDA has, has been the organization or the regulatory body that has led the way in terms of requiring overall survival because of the disconnect in some sense be, between that and PSA and sometimes radiographic progression as well. But as we saw in the non-metastatic CRPC setting, there can be a link between a radiographic progression if we design the trials properly. And when that, when that earlier endpoint, a radiographic endpoint, for example, is substantially improved with a the therapy, there's a greater chance that there may be a link between that endpoint um, and survival. And we saw this with a non-metastatic CRPC where a 22 to 24 month improvement in metastasis-free survival, which is a radiographic endpoint, was very, very closely linked to overall survival despite subsequent therapies, despite all that these patients received in terms of their care after that initial earlier therapy. So that was a long answer to say that the regulatory bodies, I think, often drive it, and there can be a disconnect in multiple settings between a radiographic and certainly a biochemical progression and overall survival in prostate, which makes it complicated. Um, and I, I think I, I totally agree with you, Shadi. I was just have a question really quick because the trial that uh, Alicia was talking about was ADT alone in the castrate sensitive, right? So ACES, is that what we're talking about? The the trial you just described- It's castration also. resistant. So it was pre-trial. So these patients had to come into the MCRPC setting without having any AR exposure and without and without docetaxel yeah, exposure. I, yeah, I guess my question is, how often is this gonna happen in 2021 in the real world? That's, I mean, do you have any insight into this? Oh, absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, I, I alluded to these the challenges that this trial is going to face in terms of its ultimate um, uptake. That is one of them. Um, so it is true now that in academic centers and many of our community practices, uh, we are trying to use intensification strategies, both in the metastatic hormone sensitive state and in the non-metastatic CRPC state, which are both states that are before, of course, the metastatic CRPC state. So having patients 
enter that state after never having been exposed to chemotherapy or AR targeted agents seems theoretically as if it should be rare and hopefully is getting rarer and rarer. What I would say is that one, of course, this trial was designed before these other studies really um, solidified the knowledge that we should be intensifying earlier. And two, despite that, real world evidence suggests that half or, or fewer than half of patients are receiving an intensified strategy. And that I think is both frustrating as a community, but it's important for us to feed back to ourselves so that we can identify this as an area for improvement. But given that reality, the ACEs trial does have some context in, in continued practice. And, and I agree. I think biologically, the androgen annihilation strategy is quite attractive. And if, if it did not work out here, it doesn't mean post-chemotherapy, it doesn't mean an earlier stage, it will not uh, work out. And to me, at least, um, Dr. Morgans, this was not a surprise, especially with all the work that Dr. Morris and colleague in the alliance that you and I are part of in a similar study, but you know, with enzalutamide instead of uh, palutamide, also at the same time failed to show overall survival. So this should not come at a major surprise, I guess. It doesn't, but I would say that it, it pretty strongly met the primary endpoint, which was this radiographic progression-free survival, mm -hmm. um, which I think this was, this may be meaningful to patients, um, particularly certain patients who are not going to potentially be put off by what I imagine to be a pretty substantial financial toxicity possibility, um, given the fact that one would have to come up with the funds to cover co-pays, even if covered for a combination approach, patients would have to come up with a copay to actually get the drugs in hand. So um, there may be some patients who are motivated enough to say that that radiographic endpoint is, is important enough and that the financial toxicity or potential thereof is, is worth um, overcoming. So I, I think that this was actually relatively impressive in terms of that radiographic progression-free survival. I'd actually really like to hear what Dr. McKay thinks about that. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, I mean, I, I think that while the PSF PFS is certainly impressive. I think the fact that we're not necessarily making people live longer needs to be taken into account. Patients are taking 10 pills. There's more toxicity from a side effect standpoint. There's more financial toxicity because now it's, you know, getting copays for two, two um, agents plus the steroid. And, you know, while sequential use of these agents, um, just from data from the CARD trial, um, we've really shied away from that, you know, we haven't, if we're not necessarily making people live longer um, with this strategy, you know, I really worry about its um, like utility in clinical practice. And I think you bring up a great point in that the people coming into this study were not necessarily intensified, which is the standard of care. Now, that being said, we know that in clinical practice, at least half of patients with hormone-sensitive metastatic disease are not intensified for one reason or another, and so may enter into CRPC never having had any sort of intensification in the hormone-sensitive setting. So, you know, I think that while the RPFS is very impressive, I think people want to see an OS signal. We want to see that people are actually, you know, living longer and we're impacting them in a very positive way. So I'm like, if we're not making people's quality of life better, if we're not making, you know, if we're not doing these things, then I think it really begs the question of what are we doing? And I think mechanistically speaking, you know, cause we've demonstrated this in the localized space through um, various um, combination trials in the neoadjuvant setting, 
you, you may not be actually getting at resistance. You may just be hitting the same AR sensitive clones and may not be getting at the resistant clones. As you know, the Proteus study is currently ongoing um, testing apalutamide in the new adjuvant space. And, and that trial was initially designed actually with abiraterone and apalutamide in that context. And given some of the early work that we had seen that there was really no substantial differences with regards to pathologic responses with combination therapy compared to single agent that the abiraterone basically got dropped. And so I think that it speaks to, well, what are we doing mechanistically in this disease context? Like, are, are we actually getting at resistance or we're just hitting the same targets and not really gaining much? Well, thank you. Thanks, Alicia, for making my life easy here and getting Raina. I want to add one thing that, I mean, a lot of it is also cultural. In what way? In what other things has done? So when the Alliance study that was already presented during that 2019 ASCO, so almost two years ago, starts by a primary endpoint of overall survival, showing, you know, with, with drugs used in the same class, doesn't reach it, show that the combination have more toxicity. I think that set up the bar very high for the ACES study, because I, I agree with you, beside overall survival, everything was in the same direction. So you could make a case that that could be a new standard, a new standard. But when you have in the background, the Alliance study showing, you know, OS, I think the enthusiasm go down. Um, well, this was great. And Dr. McKay, since we have you on now, you presented a very interesting randomized phase two study, which was, you know, I know you work hard of it, on it, even when, even long time ago when you were at Dana-Farber. And it was interestingly with a VEGF TKI plus a PARP inhibitor in an unselected uh, population. It was a CTAP, I believe, um, you know, study. So do you wanna expand a bit on this and the, on the next step? Yes, absolutely. So this was a very uh, novel trial design. We know the story of VEGF inhibition in prostate cancer. It's actually had a long, track record between um, bevacizumab, cabozantinib, and actually a lot of these agents did improve uh, PFS, but actually did not improve OS in their large uh, phase three studies. And that strategy kind of fell by the wayside of single agent VEGF inhibition for the disease. But a lot of this work was actually built on what we learned in ovarian cancer. Sidirinib is an oral um, ATP competitive tyrosine kinase inhibitor of VEGF, but we know that anti-angiogenic agents can induce sort of a hypoxic tumor environment, resulting in down-regulation of homologous recombination genes, which almost makes it look like somebody is, you know, BRCA-like or BRCA-loss-like. Um, and so we actually hypothesized that the combination of sidirinib with elaparib could potentially improve outcomes compared to elaparib alone. And we actually thought that we would see a more profound effect um, in the HRD negative um, patients, given the way um, the mechanism of action of sidirinib. So uh, we had initially presented the overall uh, uh, study reports at last year's uh, Genity Urinary Cancer Symposium. And, and this year we actually present the biomarker data. 
So this trial was um, a randomized phase two. Patients were randomized to receive the combination of sidereinib plus olaparib with olaparib dosing at 200 milligrams PO twice daily in the combo arm versus olaparib alone. Um, and the dosing there was 300 milligrams twice daily. It was patients with metastatic CRPC having at least one line of therapy for um, metastatic CRPC with a good performance status. The primary endpoint was RPFS by prostate cancer working group three criteria. And one of the key secondary endpoints, which was uh, the focus of the presentation here was RPFS by both uh, somatic and germline HRD status. Um, the trial enrolled and the trial did allow for crossover. All patients underwent a baseline biopsy. Um, the trial essentially enrolled 90 um, patients 31% of evaluable patients. And I think this was something that was remarkable. You know, we actually had of the 90 patients, 84 were actually able to undergo a BRCA HRD testing through Liz Swisher's lab um, and were actually evaluable for HRD. So 93% of patients on the study were actually evaluable for the biomarker, which we know can be challenging in the context of metastatic um, CRPC trials. So 31% had um, HRD overall, 29 in the combo arm, 33 in the elaborate alone arm. There were 6% of patients who had germline alterations. The most common alterations we saw, not surprising, were in BRCA2 followed by uh, uh, CDK12 and ATM. And what we basically showed, um, you know, we confirmed um, with longer follow-up now that the overall radiographic progression-free survival for the overall cohort was statistically improved um, with the combination over elaborate alone at around, um, you know, eight and a half months compared to around four months, which was statistically significant. But in the um, HRD population, we actually saw an even more pronounced effect you know, uh, with the combination showing benefit and radiographic progression-free survival um, over um, a lap rib alone and, and really did not see this effect in the HR proficient group. And so, you know, I think where we hope to go with this is actually potentially moving forward into a selected phase two study to really prove this signal, because really at the end of the day in the HRD patients, there was, you know, 12 patients in arm A, 14 patients in arm B that may hopefully be um, put on through um, the cooperative groups to really kind of confirm the signal before diving into, you know, a large phase three of this. So that's sort of where we're at. It was, it was very exciting. Um, you know, this was a investigator initiated study led by Joseph Kim, and I served as a translational uh, a chair for this study run through the ETCTN and, you know, takes a long time to put these studies on. I remember working on it, you know, seven years, years ago when I was still at the farmer. I think every investigator, it's a must that they have one and go through the relative uh, pain. It's important, but it's important, you know, to do it too. You know, Dr. Morgans, do you, do you think that sidirinib is special in a way in terms of an antiangiogenic inhibitor knowing it does have you know, many other, it hits many other receptors, or it could be combined with another uh, VEGF TKI, any, or perhaps, you know, cabozentinib, which no, it's trying to make its way back into uh, prostate cancer. So I, I think sidereinib is really interesting. I, I remember when this first came out and I talked to Joseph and I talked to Raina, I think a year or two ago, or I guess it was last year when this came out at GeoASCO. And I was actually really hopeful that its unique ability to affect the microenvironment, the tumor microenvironment would 
let patients who did not have these DNA repair defects actually be susceptible to a lap rib. That seemed to be almost the direction it was going a year ago when we saw the initial data. And so um, I do think that it's interesting. I think that it's an important advance. I think that it's possible for these patients who already have DNA repair defects. I don't know if it's the home run that I hoped that it would be. And I would also say that, you know, as, as Dr. McKay mentioned earlier, it's always this balance between efficacy and, and tolerability. And I think there's a fair amount of diarrhea and some other, you know, fatigue associated with sidirinib that I, I wonder if that may limit its utility in, in the long run. I, I don't know. Um, Cabozantinib, of course, had its toxicities. When we initially started treating patients with that, we were, we were overdoing it because we were using it as a single agent, I think. And that obviously didn't work as a single agent. It wasn't effective, but it also was much more tolerable and perhaps a better partner in a combination as we back down on the, on the dose uh, and look for new partners. And so I, I, think, think that, I don't yeah. know. No, I think that's totally, totally fair. I don't know. I've, you know, I'm just turfing that question. I could not answer if any TKI any VEGF TKI could replace the RNMP, but that's a perfect answer. Shadi, how am I doing? Am I going to have uh, my show next, you know, and replace you perhaps on this? Is that going well or no? How about we start like joining me before you replace me? I mean, okay, good, good. good. No, so I just want to want to see. Sure. I mean, this is this is great, and, but definitely we need to move um, towards bladder cancer because there is a lot of excitement thing there. And I'm actually I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go to Dr. McKay a bit, although I want this to be a conversation and in a bit of a larger picture of EV EV coming the antibody drug uh, conjugate. And uh, to some to some extent, taking over, um, you know, chemotherapy a bit here. So a concomitant publication by the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Dr. Powell, who has his own podcast too. By the way, Shadi, we should have him on. And uh, you know, and third line post uh, chemotherapy, platinum based post immunotherapy, a significant overall survival. Uh, Dr. McKay was EV over uh, chemotherapy, then a concomitant presentation by Dr. Ballar in, um, in patients uh, that are not eligible for cisplatin-based uh, chemotherapy. How do you see EV in your practice, uh, you know, taking over, Reina? I mean, I think the results from EV301 that were presented by Dr. Powell's have just truly cemented this as a highly efficacious therapy for patients with advanced um, urothelial carcinoma. I mean, these patients prior to EV um, coming on the scene really had, you know, platinum-based chemotherapy, IO, which, you know, when we go and look at the data regarding IO, you know, 20% of patients have a response. The primary PD rate for IO is 50%. Majority of patients actually do not respond. And so, and then you're left with, single agent, you know, chemotherapy, like docetaxel, paclitaxel, and um, those have, uh, have never been tested in a phase three prospective manner, um, and uh, response rates are quite limited. And so I really think that this is uh, the coming of a new era um, with um, infortimab, um, you know, it's really offered uh, another treatment option for patients. EV301 was a large phase three that was the confirmatory phase three for the data from the phase two that actually led to an F FDA approval in the US. 
um, where patients were randomized to EV versus, you know, physician choice, single agent chemotherapy it was a large trial over 600 patients. Um, patients had to have um, received a prior checkpoint inhibitor. They had to have received prior platinum. Um, we know that not all patients receive prior platinum. So Dr. Ballard's study certainly complements this data and we'll go through that in just a minute. And, but the response rates and survival were incredibly impressive. EV had a survival of uh, 12.8 months compared to chemo of 8.97 um, you know, months. The hazard ratio was statistically significant, you know, 30% reduction in the risk of death with EV. Um, similarly, we see the same trends for progression-free survival. And then I think the objective response rates are quite impressive. Um, you know, 40.6% objective response rate Wait, with EV compared to 17.9%. You know, I think there was some discussion about the performance of the control arm in this study because um, that 17.9% response rate for single agent chemotherapy, you know, that's that's pretty high, I think, than what we're what we tend to see from a lot of the um, you know, previously reported data. Um, and again, all of these patients had received prior platinum. So there's probably some question regarding fitness of these patients and the fact that they were actually able to receive third line, um, you know, I think is, is, uh, you know, something that needs to be considered. But despite that, there was an over doubling in the objective response rate with a CR rate of around 5%. You know, I think CRs are, are different in bladder than I think, um, maybe for some other diseases, you know, it, whereas in kidney cancer, for example, we equate CR with durability and, and it's unclear in this context how durable these CRs, at, CRs are at. So I think um, 301 was really a, a landmark study. I mean, I agree with you. I think there wasn't, it was to me at least a near perfect trial. There was nothing really to poke holes in it. And even the response rate, third line chemotherapy, I wasn't quite convinced that the 17% is very high. If you go back, it's all over the place. And from randomized phase three, it's, always, it's around 10%. So going up to 17% is not a big deal. EV, hands down. But would you agree, I mean, with uh, potentially, and that's backed by the other EV study, uh, Dr. McKay, um, that a combination uh, could have EV as a frontline in cis ineligible population would be uh, potentially, you think, the standard? I think we're good. I think uh, it's certainly very provocative. I think some of the early data, um, you know, looks impressive. Um, I think that's where the field is going is, you know, combinations and combinations up front early. But I, you know, to, to temper that, I think um, what we saw from Javelin Ladder 100 is, is really chemotherapy remains king and platinum-based chemotherapy remains king in, you know, metastatic uh, uh, urethelial cancer. So I think the bar is high for, you know, replacement of, I think, cisplatinum. And, and what we're seeing is actually, um, even from Javelin, is that, you know, the first question is, are they chemo eligible? And mm -hmm. if they're not chemo eligible, then I think that's where there's a role for maybe some of these, you know, other modalities in the front line. But I think, um, I certainly do think that these combos are going to move into the front line, but platinum, the platinum still remains a pretty high bar in the front line for bladder. So I agree with you. Now, let me ask Dr. Morgan, if EV is going to be king or queen, as a matter of fact, I think it looks better to be, you know, a queen here. I would say 
we should be familiar with two things. First, um, biomarker. And here, I do have a problem because Nectin-4, this against Nectin-4 is highly expressed. So we all had hopes that we're going to try to stain for Nectin-4, look at the expression, do this, but it's really universally. So probably we're going to take that out. But the next thing is, Dr. Morgans, is maybe focus on your experience with EV in clinic with toxicity, because the discussion here with Dr. Sifka Radke, almost, almost really focused almost only on the toxicity of this regimen. We used it in clinic, it's chemotherapy, but what your experience have been in it? I've actually had a really good experience in clinic. I've been able to give it to people. So this is before cohort two came out. Obviously this just came out, you know, last week at GUASCO, but I've been giving it to people who are chemo, not chemo candidates, even before that data came out because we had, we got approval. So certainly they'd had a checkpoint but then we were able to move on to EV because we were able to get the approval and, and make the case that if you are not eligible for chemotherapy, there is truly nothing there unless you can go on a clinical trial. So in these patients who are elderly, most of them over 75, um, at least this group that I'm talking about, who have um, some of them lower extremity, edema, chronic venous stasis. There's one who actually has some stable uh, ulcerated lesions on the legs they have been able to tolerate. Now I would say the side effects are real. So none of them have really tolerated past about six months of therapy. Um, and the limiting factor for us has not been the hyperglycemia, though we certainly watch for it and we counsel our patients very, very clearly. It hasn't been, um, it, it really hasn't been cytopenias. It's been the neuropathy. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in every single one of our patients um, after we hit about six months or so. And I've talked, I mean, as in conversations with others, I mean, there, there are a few patients who seem to avoid the neuropathy and the neuropathy lags. So you can stop the drug, just reduce the drug. The neuropathy will actually, in many cases, progress before it starts to regress because of the either cessation or dose reduction that you've done. Um, Despite that, patients in general have tolerated it very well and have had sustained responses. You know, I've stopped it for their neuropathy. Some of them are six, seven months out, no progression. So that these are people who I'd already had on trials. I've actually had some on some of uh, Dr. Kim's trials at Yale. So, I mean, they had been in multiple trials. They had no other options, um, hadn't seen platinum, but um, seemed to tolerate it, it relatively well, despite not being chemo candidates for tolerability reasons. So and I, 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 I agree. I know I agree. I think my experience somewhat is limited. I gave it and many patients, but my experience does not match at least the experience at the Farber with Dr. Brad McGregor, who led our effort here, and Dr. Guru Sompavdi, who lead the bladder cancer experts. And one thing is starting to happen with this is they both mentoring uh, one or two of our nurse practitioners who's really very interested in managing these toxicities. And one of our pharmacists that worked closely with uh, Dr. McKay when she was at the Farber, Dr. Kaimak Shalan. So uh, it, it's really opening a new era, as I remember with Javid Moslehi, all the cardio-oncology with the immune checkpoint inhibitor TKI. I think this is great. So back to you, Dr. Morgans, I think this is, and I don't want to get into the details of the adjuvant study that was presented. I, should, I think Checkmate 274 is very, very important here because it's going to open this discussion in both bladder and kidney cancer. Let's not take prostate because the immune checkpoint inhibitor benefit in prostate cancer here remains undefined. 
so far, despite all the phase three trial ongoing, but in bladder and kidney cancer. In bladder cancer, now we've seen two trials, Dr. Powell's Invigor 010, that uh, did not show a benefit in an unselected population that is high risk with disease-free survival OS. Now, Dr. Powell's and colleague turned this around and work with the Genentech team here on the circulating tumor DNA. So the PSA of bladder cancer here and showed really some stunning result presented, I think at ESMO IO. A checkmate 275, uh, 274 did not uh, do that, but at the same time did not show an overall survival benefit. Why? It wasn't presented even. So we, we leave that alone in a way. But I do want from you like, the bigger discussion here, adjuvant therapies in high-risk bladder cancer, we have two trials, and high-risk kidney cancer, they're coming. We have five, two of them, finish accrual. Are you a believer that disease-free survival alone is enough here, or you need an overall survival? It's a bit of an unfair question, I know. I really apologize. I don't know if it's my kids on the games downstairs or what. Like I literally couldn't hear the entire question. So oh, I can. I can take it. Please, Tony, repeat your question. I'm. So no, no, please, because the dog is the dog here. Yeah. I think the kids are on their tablets and leaving oh. the dog do everything. This, in this the is, house. by the way, this is why I love natural podcasts. This is exactly <laughs> what we're looking for. Now, if any listener is, for example, thinking about napping, they just woke up. All right. Yeah, but at least I mean your kid. I mean my kid's not taking care of the dog. Yeah, go ahead. Did it again. Um, yeah, Rana, Rana, you can interject if you want, as we can get some uh, additional uh, thing from Alicia. But uh, make sure you're not on mute, Rana. No, can you guys hear me? Um, no. Then, Reina, let me ask you, adjuvant studies, and it's a bit unfair, and you have to go into the details. But many key opinion leader in a GU cancer, to them, they can answer clearly that. And they're divided. And, you know, some of them say, adjuvant, you're already cured by surgery, a large proportion, you need an OS period. And others are accepting disease-free survival. What's your perspective? So I think um, the disease and the context matters. Metastatic bladder cancer is a terrible disease outcomes for patients, though we are, you know, bringing on new therapies, um, are still pretty limited. Um, it also matters regarding the type of therapy and the toxicity somebody would, would endure with that therapy. Um, nivolumab, yes, we do worry about immune-related AEs, but in general, it tends to be a pretty well-tolerated medication. You know, I think the fact that we're seeing an improvement in disease-free survival with adjuvant nivolumab in this, um, you know, high-risk uh, patients with muscle-invasive um, urethelial cancer, I think it's, it, this is impressive and it definitely a big win. I think we, we do want to try to see an OS signal, but I think disease-free survival probably matters in bladder cancer. I think it's probably clinically meaningful for patients, especially in the context of an adjuvant therapy like nivolumab. You know, I think this is different than one year of TKI therapy for somebody with RCC. So I do think this was a, a groundbreaking study. I, I'm, uh, you know, I think for the DFS, you know, you, you, you want to tease apart the data. Um, if you look at the ITT population, you know, the, the curves are beginning to come together towards the tail end. And, and I think time is going to tell whether they cross and what ends up happening with the OS signal, but certainly in the pdl one positive 
patients, the signal is quite strong and remains strong. The curves continue to separate over time, which is sort of what you want to see. So I think the data are, are quite impressive. And I think this is the start of a new era um, with regards to perioperative therapies for patients with uh, advanced urethelia. We're gonna see a slew of studies that are kind of come, gonna come about of combinations, you know, pre and post, uh, you know, surgery and, and other studies that I think are really gonna help change the field. Well, Dr. Morgans, then let's, let's think about the circulating tumor DNA. And, you know, I think, you know, Dr. Powell's really salvaged his studies with very good data there. Do you think this should be applied in a retrospect to all these studies? Assuming we have the right test, which we don't know is the right, you know, kind of tumor. So, and that's, that's the issue, you know, having, I think in urothelial cancer, we don't have consensus on any of our biomarkers right now. Uh, so having a single test that we could apply across these studies, look at that, them all retro, retrospectively, and then try to look at them prospectively. I don't, I don't think we can make decisions, certainly in terms of treatment and application of treatment to patients with, with, a, single, with a single study. But, but I would say certainly that it is a problem that we are using different assays now, of course, not on CTCs, but different assays to even define positive and negative in terms of our biomarkers in urothelial cancer and work certainly needs to be done there as, as well. I agree with you. I mean, at least in kidney cancer, I can tell you, um, you know, it doesn't shed much DNA. That tumor doesn't shed much tumoral DNA despite where it is and all the blood that, uh, you know, comes through the kidney. Uh, only one tumor probably shed less, which is GBM. That's why we have with uh, Matt Friedman and our collaborator at the University of Toronto, uh, you know, tried to look at the methylated form of DNA being more sensitive tests. So remain to be seen, but I think the next wave of excitement in a bladder and kidney cancer as the result of these uh, um, adjuvant studies. So I, I think this is important. I have to a bit disagree with Dr. McKay. I think one year of adjuvant IO is fine, less toxic than one year of TKI overall. But I do think, you know, I, I want to get into, you know, the next step, which is, you know, if you end up doing one I.O. and uh, go with another uh, I.O. and try to combine both, the immune-related adverse event gonna go up in a significant way. Go, Dr. Morgans. So, um, so I, I agree with that. And I don't know that that's the right strategy. I, I actually think that Checkmate 274 is going to completely, and I think that Dr. McKay alluded to this too, I think it's gonna transform the landscape because disease-free survival is incredibly meaningful when if the disease comes back, you often will have a rapid decline. And, and now we have more options available to salvage these patients, but it is not pain-free. It is not stress-free. It is a toil on your body when this disease comes back. So I, I do think that uh, an association, continued follow-up on Checkmate 274, I, I'm hopeful and I imagine will demonstrate um, probably given the degree of advantage here, a difference in overall survival. But I wonder if disease-free survival in urothelial cancer may end up being something similar to metastasis-free survival in prostate cancer in that it is so meaningful to patients 
that it ultimately can be a regulatory approval or, or um, help us to change our, our practice. Because this is something that I'm already thinking about, even though I have patients on the ambassador trial, for example, um, where we are using pembrolizumab in this adjuvant setting, um, we're having conversations with them about whether they want to switch to nivolumab or patients who have been on the control arm, um, you know, if, if they started recently, do they think that they might want to switch? Because I, I feel I, I feel like this is pretty powerful data. I think I think recurrences in bladder cancer, urethral cancer are different. Why we can have, you know, new disease along the urinary tract, I think at the same time, these, we know how much painful and problematic these pelvic metastases are. We know also the disease metastasize to the liver and bone. And sometimes it's a bit different than renal, which also doesn't metastasize much locally, but, but in many situations goes to the lung and the lymph node and can be detected earlier. So I do agree with you. And I think this is gonna be the next wave of discussion, but let us jump to kidney. I uh, remember the good old days, Reina, when you were in my clinic doing all those kidney patients. And this is just amazing to see this kidney. We were like you and I thinking, look, let's do sedentinib versus pazopinib, first line. There is this study, uh, compards that look at the, at the schedule, the FDA approved schedule of uh, you know, sunitinib and pazapanib, and look, there was quality of life measuring favor pazapanib, but we don't give sunitinib and go into that. We don't have to do that anymore. Now we have to think about combinations. So Dr. Mozer uh, presented really a quite interesting, hopefully this is the last of the Mohegans, uh, in a way, the sunitinib, uh, which with sunitinib control, um, the combination of pembrolan versus everolimuslin, the clear study in uh, frontline metastatic clear cell RC. Do you want to go quickly through the study overall and the results and how you put it into context? Absolutely. So um, uh, this, I, I like that analogy of the last of the Mohegans. That's really, that's great. So this was a phase three trial that was enrolling patients that had advanced clear cell RCC treatment naive. Um, patients were randomized one to one to one to actually, this was a three-arm study because it included a lenvatinib-everolimus uh, combo, but they were randomized to either lenpem, uh, lenev, or SUTENT with a primary endpoint of uh, independent review PFS. You know, uh, the just to speak a little bit to the baseline characteristics for the patients that were enrolled on the study, I think as we look at the other IO VEGF studies that are out there, there, there does seem to be a little bit more patients who had favorable risk disease that were enrolled on this study, probably on the order of just over 30%. Um, about 75% of patients had um, a prior nephrectomy, meaning 25% um, had their uh, kidney intact. Um, so, you know, it's probably around 70% for 9ER and maybe 80% for the other studies. Um, but the study was profoundly positive, you know, really impressive to see improvement in progression-free survival, uh, LENPEM over um, sunitinib. And, uh, you know, this was a 23.9 month um, PFS um, compared to a 9.2 month PFS with sunitinib. And that also translated into an improvement in uh, overall survival with a hazard ratio for LENPEM of 0.66 that was statistically significant. There was also significantly more responses that were seen, 70% uh, with LENPEM and 
um, you know, a high uh, complete response rate around 16% and uh, a low PD rate of about 5.4%. Um, but this doesn't, this certainly doesn't come at um, without a cost. I think this regimen um, is a, a can be uh, toxic. Um, we saw that rates of um, treatment discontinuation of either the LEN or the um, either the LEN uh, was around 18.5%. Um, the Pembro discontinuation rate was 25%, and, and both drug discontinued 9.7%. Um, you know, rates of uh, dose reductions. You know, about two thirds of patients had to undergo dose reductions. Um, because of uh, toxicity. Um, but I think where to put this study in context is, is we really have now four, F, you know, I guess three FDA approved, this regimen will likely be FDA approved, um, but really three regimens that have demonstrated improvements in overall survival, Pemaxi, Nebo-Cabo, and uh, the combination of uh, Len-Pem. And I think it's really hard to kind of pin these all up against each other and and um, you know, uh, nitpick the data. Uh, it's really hard to compare across these trials. These trials were all conducted at different times um, and uh, enrolled different uh, patient populations. Um, but I think it's really great for us to have, you know, a, a strong IO IO combination. Very impressive data from multiple IO VEGF regimens. And really, I think where the field is going is how do we continue to expand on this? Because though responses are great, and I think we're beginning to see, especially with the Checkmate 214 data, now four years of follow-up that, you know, about 25, 35% of patients have durability in their responses, um, which is, I think, something we look for that's still lacking with the IOVA diff combos. We still, we still have work to do. We're not quite there yet. So how can we further improve on these um, doublets um, in the frontline space? What is the role for triplets in the frontline space? What is, you know, how, how do we um, tailor our second line therapies? Because all of our prospective data in second line is post, you know, single agent VEGF. And so I think we have, we still have a lot of work to do, but this is certainly a win for patients. I think my, um, you know, interested to hear your take, Tony, but I think my comments for the, the practicing clinician is, pick a regimen and get really good at working with that regimen, get really good at working with titrating the drug because there are AEs that can be seen with these IO VEGF combinations. And, um, you know, as opposed to kind of mixing and matching and, and um, just get really familiar with, with a regimen that you're able to use in clinical practice really effectively. Because I think if, if you're not able to optimize the use in the clinic, it, it's, um, you know, we uh, can't realize these numbers that are seen in these very, uh, uh, standardized phase three trials. I agree with you. And I want to escape, uh, you know, the commercial uh, talk here, that is, which one is, is a better, you know, I'm not going to go into this, but I can tell you at least with clear, which I have been involved in uh, closely, is the, the CR rate, uh, the PFS rate are the highest to date. Now, on the other hand, the population overall is a bit more favorable. I'm not saying favorable by IMDC risk. It's a bit more favorable than something like, uh, you know, uh, 90R or even axiavulumab a bit. But this, you know, should not take off all the uh, great results with PFS and CR. Still, though, clear this is the first 
wave of data from clear. I want to look at quality of life data. I don't think the regimen, in, in my experience, I don't think the regimen is more toxic, you know, than others. I think the issue here is the same issue with all TKI. What's the dose? What's the dose of sunitinib? I don't know. I know what's the FDA approved dose to start. Uh, what's the dose of LEN? Remember, uh, Reina, LEN single agent in the randomized phase two study that led to a, approval is 24. In combo with Pembro, a decision was made at 20. In combo with Everolimus, the decision was made at 18. Uh, Monty Pal did a study looking at 18 versus 14 post TKI and found maybe 18, you know, could that the curve is on top, but I don't think anyone can claim that. 18 is, um, you know, superior. So uh, the, I think it's about the exposure overall. So certainly I welcome this other, um, this new uh, combination. Hopefully it will get FDA approval. I think the one thing um, is to focus on future ones, the one that use the good control arm so that we can start a new, uh, uh, you know, era here with Cosmic 313, with Pedigree that use Nivu Epi, and hopefully with other VEGFIO uh, new trials, looking at VEGFIO as the control arm. And um, the one thing I would add is I'm a bit disappointed a bit with the Len Everolimus frontline. I wanted to have a non-IO combo rather than a single agent TKI as an alternative to patient that for whatever reason cannot get frontline IO combination. I think the study did this arm did very well for response rate, PFS, the combination, you know, toxicity was tolerable, but then you see this hazard ratio for OS going over one. And, you know, I think I wanna wait till another update uh, rather than, uh, you know, going and putting the stamp of approval here because that hazard ratio can go to 1.3. Um, you know, biologically, uh, despite, you know, this could be explained by um, patient on the sunitinib arm, perhaps getting more IO, more drug, but biologically, it could be that exposure to an mTOR inhibitor first line, make your um, PD-1 inhibitor, your immunotherapy less efficacious later. I mean, there's a lot of body of literature why this could happen. So interesting to go. Uh, yeah. Now, um, you know, one of those studies, similar to your studies uh, with uh, NCTN, um, you know, Dr. Paul's study, Monty Paul, uh, looking at a hard-to-treat kidney cancer population, the non-clear cell with um, uh, PubMed. Uh, so this was a quite small study, randomized phase two, published concomitantly in The Lancet. Um, what do you think about cabozentinib here and the result of PubMed? Is cabo a new a standard now in untreated, unselected papillary metastatic renal cell, papillary metastatic papillary kidney cancer cell patient? I personally, yes, I do to answer your question. First off, you know, kudos to Dr. Powell and the SWOG 1500 team for really sticking through with this study. I think we need to be able to conduct randomized studies for these uh, rare histologies. Um, I know that they certainly you know, overcame a ton of hurdles to kind of seeing the study to fruition. And uh, it's actually really exciting to see this data get presented. And I do think that in the face of the other, you know, th th this is a, th I do think that Cabo Zantinib is the new front frontline standard for patients who have, um, you know, papillary RCC. I mean, when we look at the data um, that we're deriving our current, you know, standard, which is sunitinib, you know, it's, it's small 
you know, phase two studies, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, Aspen, the ESPN study. So I think this is, you know, not to say on par, but I, you know, I think this is a great body of work that really um, solidifies the role of cabozantinib for patients with, you know, papillary um, RCC. And, and again, I think, um, you know, this study took so long to run and do, and I hope that we can begin to have prospective data of our IO combinations in uh, uh, this disease context. And I know Monty um, and others are actually working on PAPMED2, um, which is um, looking at the combination of uh, cabozantinib plus a checkpoint inhibitor um, in this patient population. So I think that, um, you know, I, I do think this data is uh, practice changing. I, I agree with you, but I wanna push back on one thing despite uh... You know, I've done some work with cabozantinib here. Is that uh, one of the thing is with papillary RCC? Why it's dear to my heart? Because from the days of being, uh, you know, well invested in the TCGA, we know that MET. It's the only thing in real cell cancer where you can put your finger here. Although it's it's a bit shaky. This is not EGFR in lung cancer or ALK in lung cancer. MET. Uh, could be a target in papillary RCC. Now, 30, 40% of papillary RCC do have amplification of uh, the receptor, the ligand, mutation in MAT, or even chromosome 7 duplication. And uh, while the responses, uh, you know, are not as high as you can think, there is certainly, based on studies we conducted initially with Dr. Uh, Dr. Plimak and other, that a unique MET inhibitor certainly yield, um, you know, responses in MET-dependent. We call these MET-dependent uh, papillary RC compared to MET-independent. There was no responses, no activity in MET-independent. So if we are to find perhaps and been involved with savolitinib study, a drug that could be a bit less tolerated in a specific population, this could be a, a biomarker-based approach. No, and cabozantinib also target MET, so why not optimizing the dose of um, cabozantinib? But I think hopefully with Dr. Brian Schock, who lead the translational part here, they'll be able to sequence these uh, cases and I'm, I'm interested to see the activity of savulitinib, crizotinib, and cabozantinib versus sunitinib in, in the subset of MET-driven uh, population. And, and finally, uh, maybe Dr. McKay also uh, here before giving it back to uh, Shadi, uh, you know, two presentation, which mean we've been involved with, with HIF2. Wonder if HIF2 is the next uh, thing uh, in, um, renal cell cancer, and whether you think about the combination and tolerability of this agent, and should we go a biomarker-based approach, which I've been trying to do for 15 years completely unsuccessfully, or we should just combine this drug that looks really combinable with not a lot of toxicities. Dr. McKay? I mean, yeah, it was exciting to see the data from Dr. Bauer and yourself that actually got presented. I think we actually um, introduced the name of uh, MK6482 is uh, Bel uh, Zutafan, right? Um, you'll have yep. to correct me. So that was exciting to see. I mean, I think 
The data are quite remarkable. Um, you know, this this time this drug is currently being tested in a large phase three trial, but we saw follow up from the phase one two that was presented by Dr. Bauer, and um, the response rates are pretty impressive in a heavily pretreated patient population, which was excellent to see. And I think, quite honestly, the toxicity is, you know, really you know minimal. It's not that chronic TKI tox people can get hypoxia, they can get anemia. That seems to be incredibly you know, dose uh, dependent and is alleviated with, uh, you know, decreasing of the dose essentially. So we saw response rates, I think from the phase one, two in the uh, total population of about 25% um, with a disease control rate of 54% in this um, heavily pretreated patient population. And I think to speak to the concept of combinations, I think um, you know, Tony, you presented the data in combination with cabozantinib, though still, you know, still uh, preliminary, but, you know, impressive, again, in a heavily pretreated patient population. Um, response rates, I think, were about 22%. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I do think that, you know, this is an agent that can potentially be combined with other agents and probably moved earlier into the disease context. No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, the matters of combination, and we can be as smart as it is, uh, as we want, and, you know, sound smart, how to think about synergy. I try to go back to the old concept of the 60s, 70s, where, you know, you combine drugs that don't have overlapping toxicities as simply as that, and perhaps have single agent activity and not outsmart, uh, you know, the system, because uh, we do more, we have more questions. And I personally feel definitely every trial I do, I feel less smart about it. So um, to that extent, I'm happy that Belzutifan does not seem to have this uh, first, of course, doesn't have immune-related AE, it's not immunotherapy, but also, you know, the fatigue, the diarrhea, the significant LFTs increase sometimes with the TKI, doesn't have that. We have to, you know, keep an eye on the anemia and the hypoxia, which are on target toxicities. Uh, but so far, I think um, this is good. The one thing I would say, Reina, is that um, the, the efficacy, this was the combination I presented was uh, kind of the primary endpoint was overall response rate. So I needed, we needed to present that. But if you look at this was probably a very early data cut because a lot of uh, responses were unconfirmed. We couldn't count them. And unlike TKI and IO, Belzitifan, the HIF2 inhibitor, uh, you know, in the, in the trial we ran prior, uh, the median time to response was over six months. So uh, I would love in six to nine months time, see what's this 22 response, 22% 22 response rate will be. And hopefully it could be the 20%, um, you know, I would say uh, landmark or, uh, you know, bar in Cabo's uh, antenna. I think it will, I think it's a bit early, but the first look at the data is just tolerability. I mean, I think this is a great recap of uh, GU ASCO, and I, I'm, I'm going to call, uh, you know, on, on on Shadi. And Shadi, what what do you think? Uh, how how for someone who's who does it all, uh, you know, are, are we looking at a budding? Uh, you know, maybe the three of us will have our own podcast, and we'll invite you. It's it's really great. No, you know, it's 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 amazing. It, it's it's amazing just to listen and to hear the progress that uh, you all have been involved in. Uh, I dabbled in GU oncology long time ago where uh, docetaxel was the most innovative thing in prostate cancer. Um, I even at the, at the time, I think I, I wrote a letter to the editor for it on, on Dan Petrolak's uh, uh, paper. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, 
when I, I mean, I think I want to conclude by going through snapshots, kidney, prostate, and bladder, and then I'll let you go just as a listener and as somebody who wants to represent the consumers and folks who are listening. So when I look at the kidney, and I know that uh, Rana and Tony uh, took care of that particular piece, um, I mean, there's almost embarrassment of the riches with all of these new, all of these regimens first line, not embarrassment in a bad way. It's great to have these options, but I don't know. I mean, Rana, going back to your, to your comment that get comfortable with one regimen and, you know, master it. Mm. I honestly don't know how much the oncologist will have a say in that. Um, I have a feeling payers are going to say, you know, they're not going to give all of the options. They will say if, if this patient is insured by Cigna, Cigna is going to say Ipinivo. I mean, unless you have really a reason to say Len Pembro, um, there's no head to head. They're going to pick a regimen because from a payer perspective, they want to standardize certain things and maybe they'll get discounts from manufacturers. I mean, there's a complexity over that. I don't know how much oncologists will have a say, maybe, but I, I tend to believe that they won't. And then in academic sites, like for example, let's take UCSD. I think at some point you all in the GU oncology at UCSD will say, if we have a first line regimen, unless there's a contraindication, this is the regimen that we'll adopt. And Tony is gonna say at the Farber, we are gonna use Len Pembro as frontline therapy, unless there is a reason. So I feel like institutions will have to pick a regimen and standardize things and uh, versus uh, everybody can choose what they want. Am I too naive in thinking that? That's my question for No, I mean, uh, I think no, but let, let's face it, the US is not Canada, is not the UK. And, you know, I mean, this business is a bit, you know, um, there's a lot of financial incentives. I mean, we all work, at least Dr. McKay, Morgan, and I'm in academic centers. We, we're not too exposed into that, but I have friends, you know, more in the private and, and they know this very well. I wish, in kidney cancer, I wish we had a stampede like both Dr. McKay, Morgan is very familiar with Nick James' work with stampede, the UK trial in prostate cancer, where you take an arm, you put an arm and the standards stay the same. Imagine if we have a, 2,500 patient study uh, with all the combos or anything that comes up versus sunitinib. And then we can replace sunitinib with a control arm. We could have replaced it by nevo-ipi since Checkmate uh, 214 regimen of nevo-ipi was approved a few years ago. But what we could not pull that off in the United States. We could not. We, we just simply, simply could not. At the end of the day, the drugs have to come from the companies. But in an ideal utopia, uh, you know, this would have been uh, the best design. But still, we take what, what we have. I mean, like, I'm thinking, like, so, Rana, I mean, you get a pay, I mean, if, if you take a look at your patient that comes in with kidney cancer, you do have a preferred, they're not equally preferable to you, right? I mean, you have a preferred regimen. And then, of course, if the patient can't afford it or you think there's a contraindication, of course, you're going to use your clinical judgment but you must have a preconceived preferred regimen when you walk into the room, no? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, we all have our preferences for why we pick the things that we, that we pick, I think, in the clinic. I mean, I think the way that I like to break things down are essentially IOIO and IOVEGF, and there are pros to IOIO. Um, there's disease durability, 
there's, you know, I think it's impressive that 35% of patients at four years still have not progressed um, and people that have a response can have a pretty durable response. Um, you're not dealing with chronic, you know, I, you know, VEGF talks, um, you don't have, uh, you know, yes, there's immune related AEs, but it's, you know, if you can get over that hump, which they seem to be the worst during the first six months, um, people can do really well with um, maintenance nivolumab, but the PD rate is 17%. Um, and, and you're certainly missing some people. And so if, you know, then that's sort of where I go to my IO VEGF. Um, I think a lot of it too, at the end of the day, I think we're talking here as physicians, like, oh, this is what I would do. This is what I would do. But ultimately at the end of the line, at the end of the day, it's alignment of goals with your patient. Um, because there may be some patients that have different goals and, and quality of life matters or toxicity matters, you know, um, you know, different things matter for different people. And I, you know, I think that, um, you know, what I love about the IO VEGF, you know, with regards to the IO VEGF data that's been presented thus far, I think one of the main differentiating things that we've seen thus far, and I know quality of life is pretty hard to pin down and it's, you know, the instruments are different and everything, but actually the quality of life data with Nevo Cabo for regimens that are at the end of the day, you know, seem to be on par. I think it's pretty impressive. Like it's pretty impressive that patients feel better on a regimen and they feel better compared to Sutent. And for me, I think that, that, you know, is, is my bias maybe when I'm leaning towards picking a IO VEGF regimen. But I think that matters when they all have around the same equivalent efficacy when you kind of try to tease out apart all their base, all their uh, baseline characteristics, you know? So um, I think there is bias, um, I guess, at the end of the day. Yep, yep. So Alicia, and uh, for a prostate perspective, two quick questions just as a listener. Next week, for hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, is there anything a community general oncologist would do that they did not do prior to ASCO-GU that you had? For hormone-sensitive, and the same question for castrate-resistant, anything they would have to do next week that they were not doing prior to the virtual meeting? Well, I think that we all should have been for a long time, and hopefully we'll do now with more vigor, um, use an intensification strategy in the hormone-sensitive setting. There was actually updated da data from Titan, which, of course, was the addition of apalutamide to ADT in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting, which showed a continued ongoing robust survival and quality of life advantage to that intensification strategy in the metastatic hormone sensitive population. So this is just a reminder to us all that we're 50% we're or less in terms of our, um, our community intensifying therapies in that metastatic hormone sensitive setting. And we can both make people live longer and make them feel better, which are our two main goals. And so that needs to happen. In the metastatic castration resistance setting, I, I would say that we have new insights into um, whether there may be some benefit to synergy of abiraterone and apalutamide. But as we heard from Dr. McKay, and I fully agree, the, the benefit does not translate to a survival benefit. There is some difference in the adverse events being more common in the combination, and there's certainly financial toxicity. So I think we should recognize that we, at this point, don't have any data to intensify in the metastatic CRPC setting beyond an ADT backbone and one additional agent. And we've seen from multiple other studies that when we do, we can increase side effects without improving survival. So we're just not checking that box. So that, those are my two points. Yep. 
No, I, I, I agree. And I think Raina would agree. And at least, you know, for kidney, one thing I want to say, uh, I want to see is at the end of the day, I want to say, uh, you know, things are great. I'm looking now, I Googled the five-year relative survival from SEER in uh, by stage. And, um, you know, SEER is always five years, uh, you know, behind in a way for good reason to have the follow-up time. And I remember when the five-year survival was stage four kidney cancer, I know this, the SEER database is really real world uh, experience, like real, real world. So this is not trial. You know, the five-year survival was like six, seven, eight percent. Now it's up to 13 percent. And that's up to 2016 before we had those combinations. So I, I keep looking, you know, every year how that goes up. And that should stay in our mind. We're making progress. You know, if, if you know, the difference is between a milkshake or a vanilla ice cream or whatever cert you want, leave that to us, that's fine. We're making progress, that should be the message for our patient, they're living longer and hopefully longer with good quality of life. Right. Shadi, final word, this really, uh, you know, we, we took, we, we're gonna charge you for an extra 22 minutes. Yes, well, we didn't, we started late. Remember, we started late. No, no, I don't. <laughs> No, this is great. This was really great. I just want to, Rook, I, I want to thank you all for taking time. I know that you have way better things to do than on Sundays. Actually not. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And, and Tony, I think um, as a guest host, uh, uh, I, I think uh, I'm afraid now for my job as an amateur podcaster who does not get paid for this. I have like zero financial conflict of interest, by the way. I'm, I'm looking for financial conflict of interest. Anybody want to sponsor the podcast, please contact me. Okay. Okay. This is great. Shadi, thanks. This was good. Thank you, everyone. Okay, folks, thank you for listening. This was great. It took a little bit longer than I expected, but there's so much to cover. And if you are out there and you were curious about ASCO GU Oncology advances in bladder, prostate, and kidney, this is the show to listen to. This is the one that you want to make sure you, 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 you subscribe to. So subscribe, rate, review the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Let me know what I'm doing and how well we can improve on things. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, O-O at Outlook.com or visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Mark Twain. The man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who cannot read them. Until next time, take care.